terms of where is my honor. I realize this is probably by now eclipsing the Babylon series as the longest one I've ever given. On the other hand, I don't think there is a more important topic in the Bible. It may not be as exciting and as titillating as prophecy. It may not be anything in one sense new. And yet it is something very much on God's mind. Let's review a couple of thoughts. The book of Malachi is a summary of God's viewpoint of the end time. And in it, he opens with a context that everyone is being honored but him. And he said, where is my honor? Whence came the title for this series of sermons? Now, he closes that same book with a very bold statement where he says that in the end time, the hearts of the children and the fathers had to be turned together, else he would smite the earth with the curse. That is, the curse of decimation, obliteration, and death. The whole book of Malachi is about this. He first derides the ministry for the most part and holds them very accountable for the circumstance. And then he mentions the people and their activities in chapter 3, I think mostly 2 and 3, and talks about making up his jewels and the crowns for them at the end, and those that have their minds on him and talking about the things of God are the ones that will be there. So, no matter what we might have otherwise, and you can go to 1 Corinthians 13 to review that, whether it be prophecies, whether it be faith, whether it be this or whether it be that, it all comes down to the greatest thing, and that is love. And if we don't have that, we don't have anything, because everything else is going to be fulfilled, done. Once it's here, you don't need faith anymore, do you? Because it's here. Prophecies will be fulfilled. They won't matter anymore. What will really matter is if we love one another and can live together in peace and in harmony with each other and with God the Father and His Son. That's what it all comes down to. So the relationship really is what Malachi is talking about. Man's relationship to God. And whether or not he is getting the kind of honor and respect that he deserves or whether he is not. And Malachi 4 is a, well, even the rest of chapter 1 of Malachi is an indictment because obviously he's not at the end time getting the kind of honor and respect that he deserves. So he pretty well tees off on us, especially the ministry first. So, it isn't a matter of waiting necessarily for an Elijah to come who does that turning. He does say that that will be the case. But it is there for all of us to understand and to grasp. It is there for the ministry as a whole to repent of not giving God the honor he should have and treating his people as he would have them be taught, or treated, I mean. So, it's pretty much a diatribe that ends well 
except that it has one warning at the last. And I've said several times, the turning of the hearts to the Father is on at least three different levels. And obviously from chapter 1 of the book of Malachi, the first and most important level by far is our relationship with our Father in heaven, turning us as children to our Father in heaven. That is the whole subject, is it not, in Malachi 1? So when he summarizes it at the end, it is very much with an awareness of what chapter 1 said. We were a little naive in Worldwide years ago in saying that we needed to have YOU and YES programs to turn the hearts of our little children to their physical fathers. That's not the relevant context here. The overriding, most important thing is our relationship with our Father in Heaven. I don't think anyone could dispute or argue that. It's simply a matter of recognizing what is here as opposed to the sophomoric approach we had in Worldwide Church of God about our little kitties and their relationship with their dads. Now, that is important, too. But we find also that God says our hearts need to be turned to our fathers, and he mentions Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. In Ephesians, he mentions that in Jeremiah, about looking to he whom we sprang from. And, of course, Isaiah, I mean, Hebrews 11 talks over and over about those names from the past who did obey God, <coughs> and that our attention should go to them. So first of all, to our Father in heaven, secondarily to our fathers on this earth who were obedient, as opposed to those who were not, and looking to them as an example. The Bible is replete with stories of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and others, Noah, on and on, David, and how they obeyed God and served God. But he sprinkles through there with all those people some of their mistakes, their errors, some of them pretty major errors, to give us hope and encouragement that if we will obey him, serve him, repent of our sins, we can be forgiven, we can move forward, and we can serve God and be a part of His kingdom. So there is much to be learned from Scripture about our fathers physically in the faith, as well as our Father in heaven and His Son, who had no error. It's hard for us to make the transition from our perfect Father and His Son to ourselves, isn't it? Because the gap is so wide that it's hard for us to even begin to grasp it. So, we have an intermediate category there of people who did serve God, but were human like we are. And we can look to them and say, they were human too. They made mistakes also, and yet we can look to them because God has already said that in spite of themselves, they will be in the kingdom of God at the resurrection. 
Names a bunch of them in Hebrews 11. And then says, I don't even have time to talk about many others. So there is a point there that we can look and see possibilities, opportunities to have hope. And one of the greatest of the three categories that we need, hope is the third. Now there again, hope will go away when the reality is here. When you've risen from the earth and are changed, you will no longer need hope. You will need love forevermore. So it is the greatest thing. It is the only thing that endures beyond everything else. So the honor, the respect, the love for our Father in heaven is the number one thing that our hearts need to be turned to. And our hearts go in many, many different directions, do they not? There are so many physical, material things on this earth that can take us away from the relationship with our Father in heaven. And it's so easy for it to happen and so hard to prevent. That's why God, looking forward, saw the end of times and said they will be troublesome and that there will be those who enter in who are, and that the world will be taken in evil. Evil of every kind. So here we are, trying to honor a way of life that is foreign to us as human beings, and worship a father whom we have never met, that's difficult on a human level. Sometimes babies are born on this earth, and no one but maybe mama knows who the father is. And maybe the child will hear about the father from either mother or relatives if they're told or no at some point. But it's very, very hard for a child of five, six, seven, ten, twelve years of age, to come to grips with and to understand a father they've never met. And it creates all kinds of problems for that child. Now, we are told about a father in heaven who created everything. We are given this book, which is the holy, breathed word of God, which tells us that we are to look to the entire creation in Romans 1 to understand our Father in heaven, though we have not seen Him. We can look at trees, flowers, birds, animals, each other, the sun, the moon, the stars, and see that there had to be someone of great power, of great imagination, of great creativity, and of great love to put so much here that is so pleasant for us. To him goes all respect, honor, and glory. This is a major problem. There are those who will decry the Bible, who ignore most of it, or accept only Psalms, Proverbs, and parts of the New Testament, or whatever. And they're missing the whole panorama of what God is, who he is, and what it's all about. Now, I want to pick this up today in John 14, because this is probably as critical a section of Scripture as there is in terms of us understanding the Father and the Son 
and the relationship that we need to be in. Because here Christ explains an awful lot about the relationship. And isn't it all about relationships? Our relationship to God and His Son? Our relationship to one another? And that's what He talks about here. I think as I stated last time I spoke, this is a section that we read through verbatim in the Passover service because... I just feel that we need to hear the words of Christ himself about the subject, but on a less formal stage, perhaps we need to discuss it and talk about it more and some of the nuances of what is here, that it might help us in our relationship with our Father in heaven and help turn our hearts, because what you, under, or what you are ignorant of you tend to dismiss, but as we become more educated about something, the fears go away, the relationship or the circumstance gets better because we understand it better. Remember when you first went to school, maybe you do, and how disoriented and insecure you may have felt. Or first time you came to God's church, how insecure you might have felt. Anytime you go maybe to a new job, the first few days are the hardest because you don't know anyone there. You don't know if anyone will like you. You don't know if you can measure up and do the job that is to be done. You don't know anything about the job or the circumstance. Even if you're experienced in that field, you don't know how it's run there. So there's trepidation. There's fear. There's worry. There's concern. And those first few days can be traumatic, really. But as you get into it and you understand better, then those concerns begin to dissipate and you feel better about the circumstance until finally you become comfortable with it. New shoes, you know, whatever. So the better we understand this subject and what the relationships ought to be, then the easier it is for us to begin to develop them in that fashion. So let's pick it up. Because Christ had taught these men for three and a half years. He had given them a lot of instruction. But here he goes deeper into it. And it is his final words with them of the things that they needed to remember the most. That which was most critical to their success and accomplishment in the job that was before them to do. Okay? He said, first sentence, let not your heart be troubled. We all have troubled hearts from time to time, if not a lot of the time. We can be troubled about a lot of things, a lot of needs, a lot of wants, a lot of concerns. We find trouble. <laughs> We find things to worry about. He said here, don't worry, be happy. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, what he is about to say after that is to help dispel the worry, the fear, and the trouble that come to our hearts. 
I am troubled frequently by concern about whether or not I can be a part of the kingdom of God because I know me. And to know me is to understand that it's going to be very difficult for me to be part of the kingdom of God just as it is for you. So don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And there is the beginning of the answer. Believe God. Believe in Him. Believe the things that He has to say. Now, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven is like a camel going through the eye of a needle, right? Very, very difficult, and it, it, it kind of mashes the camel up pretty badly. I know stories about low gates and all that stuff. The point is, it's very difficult. Now, we may not be rich materially in some respects, and yet on the other hand, as Americans, we are compared to the rest of the world. It's just a matter of the comparison. We are extremely rich, the poorest of us here, compared to most of the rest of the world. And it is therefore very difficult for us to enter the kingdom of God because our minds can turn to material, physical things. And we do not need dependence on God so much. Now, if they cut off your social security pretty soon, and your disability, and your food stamps, and your this and and your that, then the riches small as the Social Security check might be, disappear, don't they? Then what do you do? You're old, you're feeble, you're sick, you're crippled, can't see, hear, feel, think. What are you going to do? Then you're not a rich man anymore. Or woman. Then you turn to God, don't you? That thought in mind, it wouldn't be a bit surprising to me if someday that's cut off. Now what? With it, jobs will go. With it, the economy will go. With it, we will be invaded by our enemies. We will go into slavery. And life will not only be difficult for most Americans, it will become impossible when about 90% die. So I think this is an important thing for us to consider now. And even if we don't consider ourselves rich in terms of materiality in comparison with others in America, we are certainly rich in the things of this society and culture around us that take our minds from God. There's a lot of stuff around that can do that. So he said, believe in God and believe in me. Review Romans 11:26, which says all Israel shall be saved because God is not going to be a failure. Christ made it very clear and stated it as so that he only lost one of those given to him while he was here on the earth, and that one was by pre-design with Judas, because there had to be a betrayer there as a symbol of the rest of us. We can look down upon Judas 
but we have all betrayed Christ. So our name in the past has been Judas. We have disobeyed. We have broken his law. So our name could be Judas. We are looking for a new name, a different name, a better name than that of traitor. <clears throat> but we need to believe that his plan is going to work. Yes, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it is going to be in the minority. Because one thing we need to understand about our Father in heaven is he is a father, first of all. And he will be a successful father. He will not lose many of the children that have been born on this earth in the long run. Not many. There have been a lot of Israelites born. And he says, they will all be saved. Now, I think all there in the context and tied together with the rest of the Bible does not mean every individual, but it means the vast majority. Whether it be in the first resurrection, the second, great white throne judgment, whatever. Most are ultimately going to make it. Because God is successful. He is not a failure. He will have his children in his kingdom. So we need to believe that. Don't be troubled. Believe it. In my Father's house are many mansions, perhaps can be translated better, positions, opportunities, places to be. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. My whole purpose, henceforth, I'm not going to be here on this earth anymore. I am going back to where my Father is, and the express reason for that is to prepare a place for you. You don't need to be troubled. I'm up there working for you. I'm building your house for you. A place for you to be. And if this were not so, I would have told you there isn't much hope. I would have told you the devil's going to take most of the people on the earth, and God cannot save them. They're lost, like the Protestants teach. So just a very few of you are going to make it. I'm sitting here looking at 12 of you. I don't know, one or two might make it. How hopeful that is. No, he's very positive here. So he's trying to build the relationship and the understanding between himself and them before he leaves. To give them great hope that things are going to work right. We don't need discouragement. We don't need necessarily delay. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now, our hope has been being deferred for quite some time now in terms of our physical frame and life, and now we're, most of us, growing older. So, hope deferred, kicked down the road, can make you heartsick. It can make you want to give up. That's why he says, he that endures to the end will be saved, not he who gives up halfway there or just because things aren't happening as quickly and as excitingly as we wish they would. 
The other side of that coin is that, oh, I wish it would hurry, but are we ready? See? It might be a long way away if he waits till we're all ready. But he's not. He has his time plan. And we need to be in a hurry to get ready and be as ready as we can be. Because he went to prepare a place, and I'm going to come to you and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming to this earth. We'll meet him in the clouds. We're going to his throne in heaven and have a year honeymoon with him. Be instructed of the Father in our job, establish a marriage, and then he's coming back to this earth with the Father in us to rule the earth in peace and love. That is a summary that can be proved by Scripture, even though we didn't understand it in Worldwide Church of God, but it fits all the holy days better than anything we ever learned there. And it says in Jude that we will ever be with him. We will never be separated from him again. You know what else that means? It means you'll never fast again. He says, when I'm not there, my disciples fast. When I'm with them, they don't fast. So if you don't like to fast, get close to God. You won't ever have to again. Not that it would matter a whole lot if you were a spirit being, I guess, but God eats and drinks. He enjoys wine. Wine that cheers the heart of God and man, it says back, I think it's in Deuteronomy. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. He said, I've told you about where I'm going, going back to my Father's throne. So you know all this. Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not where you go, and how can we know the way? He said, well, you may have talked to us, but I don't quite get it. And Emmanuel said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he's saying there is you better read my words, you better believe my words, you better understand what I have to say, because if you want to know where I'm going and you want to be there and you want to know how to get there, then you better know me. Because he is the only way whereby we can enter the kingdom of God. He is the door to the sheepfold. You can't enter any other way. Now, this is becoming critical already, isn't it? The relationship between us and him is so important because it's what opens the path to eternal life and peace and happiness. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. If you know me, you know him. <clears throat> we could do probably another whole series on Christ himself and the things that he had to say. But really, if we study the Father carefully, we know everything about Christ. They are absolutely just alike. There is no shadow, no variableness, no turning. They are completely alike. They think exactly alike. 
So if you know the Father, you know the Son. And if you study about the Son, you're coming to know the Father. So when we speak of honoring our Father in heaven, we're also speaking of honoring the Son. Because they are together, even though they're separate individuals, they are one and the same. Excuse me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll feel okay then. Emmanuel said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father? You're looking at him, he said. We're one and the same. If you want to know the Father, look at the Son. If you want to know the Father better, read all the things that Christ said. Read all the things he did. Because you're seeing an exact image, a replica of the Father in heaven. The reactions are the same. The procedure, the approach is the same. So if you study one, you study the other. <clears throat> Believe you not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Don't, don't you get it? We're one and the same here. The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. He was a human being at that time on the earth, and he stayed very close to his Father in heaven, so that his reactions, his sayings, his teachings, his actions... Everything would be in line with the Father's will. And that was a very hard thing to do because he was tempted in all points like we are. Every temptation, every thought that is a bad thought came to his mind, just like it does to yours and mine. The difference is he handled it differently. But the temptation was just as great. I've had people argue that point in the past because they says, why, he couldn't have thought like I think. Yes, he did. That was the whole point. Was for him to have the same human feelings, the same human emotions, the same human desires that were negative and wrong. So that he might control those, never give in to them, live perfectly, and therefore save us from our sins where we have not lived perfectly. When the scripture says he was tempted in all points like as we are, it means exactly what it says. If that were not the case, we do not have a Savior. Can we grasp that? He had to go through exactly what we go through and never give in in order to save us from ourselves and from Satan. He had to. There's no other way. I mean... Why even come here? Just go ahead and stay at his father's throne and let us muck through and die. But he's our high priest and our mediator today, and everything we say to the father is filtered through him. Nothing goes to the father except through him. He says that. 
In fact, I think before we get done here, he'll say it. Okay. The Father does work. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. You might not make all the connections properly, but believe me because of what you've seen. The works that I've done. And how I haven't given in and haven't sinned and have done what I'm supposed to do. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, (coughs) because I go to my Father. Now, he is opening a door of opportunity here, which is beyond comprehension. We know what he did on this earth. He healed the sick. He forgave sin. He resurrected the dead. He did some incredible things on this earth. And he's saying to these men, if you believe me and you live accordingly, you'll do greater works than I did. Now, as you go on through the New Testament, you will find healings, resurrections by Paul. They did the same works, and in some respects greater, even then, than Christ himself did. He was God in the flesh. And isn't it a greater miracle in some respects for someone who is so very human? Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. And the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he did. Like you and me. And for him to resurrect the dead? Isn't that overcoming a greater obstacle in some ways? because of the human nature that was involved. So they did as great a works later on as Christ did. And you know what? I believe in the end time, it's going to become even greater than that, because it is the last great witness and testimony that God is God. And that He will have His honor. We've gone through 6,000 years of human existence with very little honor ever having been given to God. And even the incredible things that happened in the early New Testament church did not make a ripple on the surface of mankind's seas. Just a big enough ripple to get Christ killed and the apostles martyred and the church destroyed. But no honor was really given by this world to God. And he says, here at the end, it is going to be greater and more powerful, and the whole heavens and earth are going to be shaken until mankind knows that God is God. So whatever he has done in the past is going to be eclipsed greatly by what we are going to be seeing in the next few years. It has to be a grand smash climax of the age of man and Satan on the earth to show the power of God above Satan and the way of God stronger than man. It just has to be. It can't be any other way. So greater works have to be done. 
than what has been done either by the early church or by Christ himself. Of course, he's going to be behind it and causing it to happen and giving the power to do it, but he has always worked through human instruments and he's going to do the same thing again. And he has called you in this room as his witnesses. Read Isaiah 43, 42. That whole chapter, the whole context from 40 to 48. He's called an end-time group to be his witnesses that he is God. It's not just two. It's all those who will serve him and believe him, follow him, and do his end-time work. Those are his witnesses. So you will be part of the greatest work that has ever been done on the earth earth, far greater than anything done in worldwide, that was merely a calling. It was not a finishing work. It was a calling out, a friendly message for the most part, to get people to begin to address God. Now we have that fallen apart, destroyed, splintered, scattered, and out of the ashes, out of the splinters, he is going to call someone, some, some people, to do this end-time work. And it can be you and me included in it. Ten percent remnant of what there was. The Bible is very clear, and we know that. But let's grasp that this isn't just theory. This isn't philosophy. This is what's going to happen says so in God's own words that we need to believe. You know what belief can do? It can galvanize you into action, can't it? You know, maybe in school, maybe sometime in life, you began to realize that girls were girls and boys were boys and there was a difference between the two. And as youngsters, it would create sweaty palms, uh, insecurity, and frustration because you might like that boy or that girl across the classroom, but you were nervous about it. And you didn't know whether you should speak to them or if you're going to speak, oh, what would I say? And anyone starting to grow up has those concerns about relationships. But the first little hint, if you remember back, that that person might like you would do what? It would transform you. All of a sudden you could, I will say something. I can do. There's a possibility here. Remember that? It would galvanize you into action. I remember in the second or third grade or whenever it was. Saw a girl I knew in the movie theater. Had to have been pretty young because it was Saturday movies in the westerns. So I couldn't have been more than six, seven, maybe eight at the latest. I saw a girl that I knew at school. I went and sat by her. And boy, did I want to hold her hand. But my hand got so sweaty, 
that it would have slipped off if I'd have tried. So I kept wiping it on my pants and trying to screw up my nerve. All she would have had to look, look over and say, you want to hold my hand? But no problem. Probably grabbed it with both of them. What we have to do is come to believe in possibilities, brethren. We have to grasp that it's possible we live in the kingdom of God forevermore. You've got to believe it in order to do something about it. To begin to produce the works and the fruit that need to be produced. If you don't believe it, you're going to be half-hearted about it. And that's why I think many of the scriptures that you and I have considered over the last years are so important. Because it isn't just a figment of the imagination. It tells us in here, through the prophecies and through the whole Bible, all the things that need to be done by the end-time church and how that remnant will come together to build the temple and to build Jerusalem and to do the final work of God as His witnesses. The story is laid out really in detail, isn't it? And you and I have read it and we've seen it. Now that gives us more hope, more opportunity, more possibility, and it should galvanize us to more action to make sure that we are included in that end-time remnant. So he's opening that door of hope here to his disciples. And they went on to perform this. Just as we read it now, and we are to go on and to perform it, to see it through, to finish it. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, verse 13, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So he says, you ask me to do things, and I will do them so that my Father can show his glory through me. This is an avenue that he wants open then. We need to have the temerity, the drive, the interest, the excitement to, fill, to fulfill it, to go through with it, not to hang back. He takes no pleasure in those who shrink back or hang back, but those who boldly come to the throne of God for his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, his help, and his strength. Those are the ones he looks to. So he's telling them, look, this thing is wide open. There is opportunity here beyond comprehension for you. And it will glorify my Father in heaven. So something that glorifies God, then, is something God wants done. Right? So God really wants us to come through. He wants us to do this thing. He's not sitting up there saying, well, I'll give them an opportunity, but they ain't going to make it, so I'll squash them. That's not his approach. It's not the way he thinks. Look at this bunch of guys. All they could do at, at the Passover was argue about who was the greatest. That was as deep as their thought process went. And he could have looked at them and said, yeah, maybe one of you will make it. But he didn't. They were carnal, 
wretched, selfish, self-centered, egotistical jerks at that point. That's what they were. And he gave them this opportunity. They weren't any much different, really, then, than us, were they? And he's given us this opportunity. Now, you're going to have to give him some help, I think. <laughs> Let's move on. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, you can take that shallowly and just willy-nilly ask God to do anything, you know. Would you please make my carrots produce this year? Or whatever. I need a new car. Would you just have one in my driveway tomorrow? He's not a genie in a bottle. But he's talking here in overall terms. If you're living according to my will and my way, there is no limit to what can be done. You can do greater things than I have done. It's an explanation of opportunity is what it is. If you love me, keep my commandments. Gives the first instruction then. Everything up to now has been here as an opportunity. Here's what can happen. Now, if you do love me, Keep my commandments, because he says the keeping of the commandments is love. John says that back in 1 John. That's what it is. And that is the biggest obstacle that you and I will ever face. Do we love him enough to keep his commandments? Or do we sometimes set them aside because of our own selfish purposes? That's the scary part. But if you keep my commandments, that shows and proves that you love me. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, a helper, that you may be, he may, or it may abide with you forever. He says, I know you're entering uncharted water here. You're carnal as the day is long. And this was summertime, late spring. So you've got to have help. you just got to have help. You can't do this on your own. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, <coughs> because it sees it not, neither knows it, but you know it, for it dwells with you and shall be in you. By his presence, the Spirit of God was with them. But fifty days later, well, from at least at Pentecost, the Spirit would come, and it would dwell then in them germinate in their minds and begin to build a relationship with the Father and the Son with understanding now. They had heard the words, but they didn't get it. It just didn't penetrate. And when the Spirit opens, you've seen people like that who heard the truth, and it simply would not penetrate. They ignored it. They fought it. And then, if the mind opened, it came in, and just like that, they understood. Little booklets, only eight, ten, quarter page wide booklets. Why were you born? That's a big subject, isn't it? Eight or ten little quarter pages explaining, and your mind just opened. What kind of faith is required for salvation? Little tiny booklet, your mind opened. Now they can write volumes and big books. 
And the mind doesn't open unless God opens it. Unless the spirit of truth comes into that mind and opens it, you cannot grasp it. Verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world sees me no more. But you see me, because I live, you shall live also. So he says, I'm staking your future life on my own. I know I'm going to live, and I'm going to see to it that you live. And it happened. And those disciples, later apostles, are going to be ruling over the ten tribes of Israel in the future. When Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and those people come up in the resurrection, they're going to recognize the tribes of Israel because there's 12 gates of 12 tribes. 144,000 people, 12,000 spirit beings as the bride of Christ, they're ruling with Christ. Those men will be in the second resurrection, and they're going to see John and James and Peter, the apostles, ruling the tribe that bears their name. That's the tribe of Reuben. Well, I'm Reuben. Well, sorry, but James rules that tribe. You can be in the kingdom of God. You can't be the bride of Christ, but you can be in the kingdom of God if you'll do what James tells you. It's going to be quite an awakening for those people, isn't it? Verse 20, At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You're going to understand the closeness of the relationship as it should be between the Father, the Son, and us. It's not just some imaginary thing of a God of the mind or a fantasy or a spook, as people who say they believe in God believe. It's a real relationship. You really talk to Him, and He really hears you. And sometimes He gives you what you want, and sometimes He gives you what He thinks and knows you ought to have. And those two are not always the same, if you have noticed. I doubt we very often pray for trial, trouble, tribulation, persecution, and difficulty. And yet it seems we are beset by those things. Because that's what we need. He said, through much tribulation enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet it's easy for us to reason that, well, if I'm obeying God, everything ought to be going wonderfully for me. No, the more you obey God, sometimes the more trial and trouble and pressure He puts on you. Oh, you passed that one? Wonder if you can do this one. It's like the old saying, every day, do a little more than is expected of you. And pretty soon, more will be expected. So it can become a catch-22 in a way in a workplace, can't it? They expect you to put out this much, and you put out more, and then pretty soon that's expected, and even more. So then you're working your tail off, and you can't please them because they always expect more and more. Well, we have a long way to go, don't we? To be like God. So if we pass and get over one hurdle, 
You know how it was when you were running track? They had the low hurdles and they had the high hurdles. And you aspired to be able to run the high hurdles. Because anybody that ran the low hurdles wasn't as good as somebody that could jump the high ones. So you might have started out on the low and hoped that you graduated to the high. So God gives us little hurdles to overcome. And as we do those, he just raises the bar. Maybe high jump or pole vault would be a better analogy here. Because it just goes up incrementally a little more and a little more. And challenges you at all times to do even more. So we're here to become like God. And if we have some success, then the hurdles will get higher. Expect it. It's the way it is. Verse 21, he that has my commandments, and that's not enough, he that has them and keeps them, he it is that loves me. (coughs) Peter remembered that, didn't he? Or was it James? Not the hearers only, but the doers will be justified. You've got to have the commandments and you've got to keep them. He it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And will manifest myself to him. So he says, I'm going to begin to reveal myself to those who will keep my commandments. And the closer we adhere to them, or adhere to them, the closer to God we will get, the more he will reveal and manifest himself to us. If we begin to draw back from doing his will and his commandments, then the relationship is going to suffer. So if you want to be close to God, the formula is actually quite simple. Keep His commandments. And the more you do it and the better you do it, the more He will reveal Himself to you and the closer you will get to Him. Because the Father and the Son never break any of their own commandments. And they have a perfect relationship. They never argue, they never fight, they never get crossways with each other at all. Because they think perfectly alike. Their emotions run the same way. Their responses are always the same. Their responses create love and harmony and peace. Ours often produce something a lot less than that. And it's because we are not keeping the commandments in the way that they're intended to be kept. We still love ourselves more than we do our neighbor, and therefore we will say things that are hurtful and spiteful and backbiting and whatever else is because we still love ourselves more than we do them. It's that simple. Say we need more love. Yes, we do. Well, how do you define that? Having the right attitude toward your neighbor is love. Keeping the commandments of God. The first of which is honor and glorify and obey God. And the second is with your neighbor. It's the way to perfect relationships. And we are all falling short of that or we would have perfect relationships. But we don't. 
we got work to do. People say, well, we need more love. Easy to say. Or somebody will say, there's no love around here. I hear it once in a while. This really irritates me. There's a lot of love here. We wouldn't live together in as much peace as we do if there wasn't. And we wouldn't be helping each other every time we turn around and do whatever needs to be done if there wasn't. And somebody who's in a bad attitude says, there ain't no love around here. Well, they're not acting very lovable. That's all I can say for them. There's a lot of love here. I don't mean to that to pat ourselves on our back and tell us we're okay. We've got a long way to go. We need a lot more of it. But there's a lot here. And our relationships here really are not that bad. We get in each other's hair once in a while, but that's not, you know, we're humans still. And we don't have perfect attitudes yet, but we're working on it. If you didn't want to work on it and you didn't want to hear about it, you wouldn't be here. Right? You're a captive audience. You really are. Because you want to be part of the kingdom of God. And if we come and discuss the words of God, you can't leave. You can't. Because you're compelled to hear what God has to say, and you want to do it, even though as a human being you fall far short of it. <coughs> I can't not come here and open this book and read it to us. Because I know what we need to do. So I'll reveal myself, or manifest myself to him. Verse 22, Judah said to him, Not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Why, why would you do that with us and not everybody else? Emmanuel answered and said to him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He even says there in Revelation 21, they're going to the new heavens and the new earth are coming down, <coughs> and at the beginning of the millennium, because there are still sinners who are not allowed in. It isn't after the earth has been burned up and a new heaven, a new earth, some care comes out of fantasy that we believed before. Based that on Isaiah 66, and it doesn't say that. It says, I have the new heavens, the new earth, and it talks about people having babies and building houses. And all flesh, end of chapter 66, coming before God. So he is up there providing a mansion, building a city. And it will come down and us with it. The bride coming down with new heavens and new earth at the beginning of the millennium to rule the earth and reign with him a thousand years. It's very clear when you understand the scriptures. We just didn't get it before. We'll come and make our abode with him, our, the Father and the Son. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. Anything I say, he says, comes directly from the Father. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. So you say you love God, and you don't keep his commandments. You're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. John remembered this when he wrote First John, the book of 1 John. If you say you love him, you have this emotion for him. It isn't God's love unless you keep his commandments. That is the definition of God's love. 
is keeping his laws, his ways, his commandments. You want to know if you have love? You can determine that. It's by how much you keep his commandments. You can quantify how much love you have. If you keep one of the commandments, eight of the commandments, six of the commandments, half the time, <laughs> you know, you break one, you've broken them all. You've got to be trying and working at keeping all of them at all times. And that shows your devotion and your love for God. That's how you quantify how much love you have. How do you treat God and how do you treat your neighbor? If you treat your neighbor shabbily, then you don't have much of the love of God. It's just that simple. It's easily defined. He says so here. Love is such an elusive term, isn't it? We can say, I love you, I love you, I love you. It can mean a lot of different things depending on who you're talking to and what kind of love it is. But the love of God is the keeping of the commandments. And it will produce feelings, right kind of love, for all human beings. And especially for our brothers and sisters, he says. So he said, why not to the rest of the world? Because I've called you out. I've called you and showed you my way. And I am going to manifest myself to those who obey me and the world won't. That's what he's explaining. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine but the Father's. These things have I spoken to you, being yet present with you. I'm telling you ahead of time. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, it shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So it's going to be there as an instructor, a reminder and many of the things that he said right here in this chapter were written again and again by all the gospel writers because God brought these things to remembrance to them. And we're reviewing what he said right here word for word, even as the apostles repeated it here and there throughout the gospels. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We should come to the point, somehow, some way, that we are not troubled and afraid. Because we have done the things he said, and in that we gain confidence and strength and hope, and the worry begins to fade. Now, Paul was able to say, Near the conclusion of his life, I have finished the course, I have run the race, and I will be in the kingdom of God. He wrote it with great confidence. Now we should come to have, at some point in time, that kind of confidence that we will be in the kingdom of God. Not self-righteously, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but an honest assessment of our lives that conform to the laws of God. And if they conform, as much as they conform, 
as we grow in keeping his laws, we will come to have more and more confidence. Some days you will have more than you will other days. But because the closer to sin you are, the less confidence and hope you have and the more fear and trepidation you deal with. That's just the way it is. And where was I? So he said, don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Live right. Do what you should. And your confidence level will soar. You have heard how I said to you, I go away and come again to you. If you love me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now have I told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, you might believe. I don't want you to forget this, he said. When I go, and I'm going soon, I want you to believe this. Now he's gone, he's back with his Father in heaven, and we're here. And we fast, and we pray, and we hope, and we believe, and we obey him because we know the reward is great. Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. And after this dissertation, he did not. Very, very rarely, he came and talked to Paul later for three and a half years in the desert. But he did not come back in glory. But he has been here and has talked with a few people since he gave this talk. Not very often. For the prince of this world comes and has nothing in me. He says, I'm the anchor here and I'm going away. And the prince of the air, the prince of this world, will take control. And brother, is that ever true? He is in heavy control now, and he's getting more and more control of the hearts and lives of men as time goes on. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. He told me I had to live by his laws, and I'm telling you, you've got to do the same thing. Let us go from here. Then he says, chapter 15, I am the true vine, my Father is the husbandman. So here's an analogy about the way things are spiritually that we need to grasp. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So the better you do, the more you're going to get pruned, so that you might bring forth more fruit. Now, it is not true of all vines and true of all trees, necessarily, as much as it is, at least, with grapes. And he uses the vine here as the example for, I think, a very good reason. And grapes, the only part of the vine that produces fruit is new growth. If you see commercial orchards or vineyards, they cut it back right to the the almost the rootstock, the what am I trying to say? The vine itself. They cut nearly all the branches off. And you'll see them out there, row after row, sticking up about that high, with little short limbs about that long. Because they know that only new growth produces fruit. 
So you have to always be growing. You always have to be going forward. You can't sit still. You can't become uh, satisfied and doing nothing as we came to be in Worldwide. We are to always grow in the knowledge, won't all come to me, the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Always constantly growing because growth produces fruit. Sitting still produces no fruit. Old growth, what you did yesterday, means nothing. What you do tomorrow is what is important. It has to be a forward-growing process at all times, or no fruit will be produced. Yesterday you may have produced some fruit, but what you did yesterday will not produce fruit today. Okay? Now, that fruit may be treasure in heaven from yesterday, but it doesn't mean anything for today. Every day is a new day, thankfully for us. He purges it, trims it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. He says, I'm cleaning you all up by the washing of the water of the word of God. So, there's no reason not to move forward. But you know what one of our biggest obstacles is? We worry about the past. We worry about what we were five years, ten years, twenty, thirty, forty years ago. We worry what we did last week or yesterday. That's gone. It's past. You can't do a thing about it. And what you did last week, last month, or fifty years ago will not produce fruit today. It's done. It's water under the bridge. It's gone. It can hold you back. Either out of disgust with yourself, in fear that you won't make it, or if you did such wonderful things last week or years ago, Then you pat yourself on the back in self-righteousness about what a good boy was I. And that itself condemns you. Because your right hand and your left hand aren't to know what each other is doing. So what you did a month ago or 50 years ago has no bearing on your growth rate for today. Except and unless it impedes righteousness because of the baggage that we carry around. We are given a new day every morning, the book of Lamentation says. There is hope in every new day. What we worried about yesterday need not be worried about today if we can simply have the belief and hope that that is true. The faith to believe that the sacrifice of Christ covers our sins daily. Now, that may be the case, but getting us to accept, understand, and believe that is sometimes difficult when we know how far far short we fall. (coughs) But how far short you fell yesterday should have no bearing on today. It's a new day. Live it as a new day, not living in the past. People will carry around what they did 30, 40 years ago as a burden on their shoulders. Maybe before they were even converted 
Or even if they were, we still have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So why do you drag an anchor around? You can sail a whole lot faster if you're not dragging anchors. Did you know that? Unhitch the trailer. You'll get better mileage. You'll go further faster. Forget the baggage. Let's move forward. So he said, you're clean through him. So clean, you don't have to worry about being dirty, do you? You don't have to worry about the past. Move on. As long as you have breath, there is still hope. A live dog is better than a dead lion. So he says, through these words, you can be clean. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. You cannot live a successful human life that will end in immortality apart from Christ. He is the door. He's the only way that you can inherit eternal life. If a man abide not in me, is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Here again is great hope. He says, if you, if you detach yourself from me in my way, you'll wither up. You'll die. You'll be thrown in the fire and burned up because you're not producing any fruit. But if you're attached to me and you get the life and the feed that you need spiritually, then you will grow and you will produce fruit. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Let's see if we can quantify that just a little bit. I don't have much time left for today, and maybe this would be a good thing to end on. It says we're supposed to produce fruit. How do you quantify that? How do you know if you're producing fruit? What does it mean to produce fruit? We go out, we look at a tree. Sometimes in the year it's blossoms, that's not fruit. Sometimes it's green. You eat it and tart, bitter, sour, whatever. It's not ripe, it's not ready, it's not usable. Still too green, not sweet enough. Now, if he uses this analogy, we ought to be able to tell, like we can with a tree, if the fruit is ripe, if it is truly fruit, right? You ever eat a green persimmon? You can talk. Oh, it's awful. You have to be real careful. That persimmon is fruit, <laughs> not just nastiness. And if you eat persimmons, you learn pretty quickly to tell whether it's soft enough and it's going to be good and taste great and be sweet or whether it's going to draw your mouth up. Now, what about us? Shouldn't we be able to measure, if God uses the example of fruit, trees, vines, and grapes, shouldn't we be able to somehow get an idea of where we are? What does it mean, produce much fruit? He said he will give us his spirit and will lead us to truth. The spirit of truth. 
I want to go to one scripture here and see if we can begin to assess where we stand on a day-to-day basis better than perhaps we have in the past. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't keep them, you don't love me. Does the spirit of truth dwell in you, and how strong is it, and is it producing fruit in you? How do you define this fruit? All right, let's go to Galatians 5. Here is your measure of whether you are producing fruit or not. He goes through and shows the work of the flesh, which are really fairly easy to define, are they not? Look at any one of us and anybody on earth and pretty much you'll find some of the works of the flesh. They're real easy to come by, quite common, easy to quantify, not too much trouble defining. Well, should it not be so that you could define good fruit from bad works? How much of a liar are you? How much do you dabble in witchcraft or idolatry or fornication or adultery or lawlessness or any of these things? How often do you murder? Which could be assassination of character as much as bullets. You can quantify those things, can't you? All right. What is fruit? We are to produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit... Now, remember, he said, I'll send you my spirit. It'll be your comforter and it'll lead you to truth. It is the thing that will cause your mind to open and cause it to grow, right? To produce fruit. Fruit, then, can easily be defined. And maybe we've had a, I don't know, a, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a, a a hazy will work, a hazy view of what producing fruit meant. But here he tells you, the fruit of the Spirit of God, that which it produces, that which is the fruit of the vine of Christ, is right here. It's love. Love is the keeping of the commandments. How much do we keep the commandments? Will that produce love? Toward God and love toward man. Are we the kind that has bitterness and hatred and envy and jealousy flowing through our minds and our emotions? Or do we have feelings of love and understanding and compassion and help and strengthening and serving flowing through our minds? Where do our emotions go? What kind of relationships do we have? Because that's what this is all about. He said, the Father and I have a perfect relationship, and you can share in this if you'll live our way and have the true love of God. So what we do and how we check this out is we look around and see how well we get along with our husband or wife, with our family members, our children, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, people we come across, and is there true love and understanding and compassion and feeling and empathy, sympathy with people? Or are we short with them, 
angry with them, frustrated with them, judging and condemnative of them because they don't measure up to how good we think they ought to be or we think we are. Do our relationships reflect cooperation and peace and love? First one's love, joy. How joyful are we? Do we feel joy in each other and in God? Or are we negative, turned off, tuned out, frustrated, miserable, and mean? To what degree? Peace. Sounds like my voice is changing. Maybe I am getting past 15. Peace. How peaceful are your relationships? Do we argue, fight, get on each other's nerves? How much peace is there in our relationships? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Is the peace that we have ripe? Is it acceptable to others? We're peaceful. We get along. Long-suffering, that is, patient. We suffer long. Forgive each other 490 times in one day, ad infinitum. There's no number. There's no stopping how much we have to forgive each other or be willing to every day. Should I forgive somebody seven times if he offends me and steps on my toes seven times? Christ said, no, 70 times seven. 490 times. Nobody's going to do it that often to you, I don't think. Some of us push it a little now and then, but I don't think we'll go past that. How long does it take you to get over hurt? To get back to a peaceful coexistence with someone who's hurt your feelings? Well, you have those sundown, according to God. So some of us have joked, we'd like to offend somebody right after sundown so we can nurse our bad attitude for at least nearly 24 hours. Because we like to revel in self-pity and animosity at somebody else. How much peace do we have? That's a fruit of the Spirit. Is it ripe and ready for use? Or are we warlike and antagonistic and have difficulty? Long-suffering, being very patient with one another. And I don't mean just keeping our mouth shut, but I mean actually patient. Where it's patient on the inside, not just on the outside. Gentleness. How gentle, kind are we with each other? Goodness. People say, oh my goodness. You know what that is? That's actually a swearing. Oh my godness. It's like heck or something for hell or, da- or uh, darn for damn. It's just, or freaking for whatever people say these days commonly. It just waters it down a little bit. Oh, my Godness. So it's patting ourselves on the back is what it is. How much goodness 
do we really have? Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. Are we worried, fearful all the time? Or do we have faith that God will take care of us? That's a fruit of His Spirit. Meekness, lack of pride. Some of the most humble, meek, appearing people are the most proud people on earth. I've seen that so many times. People who act humble, and it is an act, and they appear humble, and yet if you nudge their pride a little bit, boy, here it'll come. True meekness, where they do think of themselves less than they do others. Esteem others better than themselves. How often do we put our opinion above someone else's, and how often do we subjugate our opinion to theirs? There's a way to judge whether that fruit is ripe yet or not, or if it still needs a lot of growth. Temperance, not being extreme in things, but able to handle things in an even fashion. Against such, there is no law. Those things can be unlimited. So if you want to quantify growth, come back to Galatians 5 and read the fruit of the Spirit and see how ripe you are. Here is a defining section of what Christ was talking about there in John 15. He's the vine, we're the branches. Do we produce large, succulent, sweet fruit? And these are the categories. You know, if you're talking orchard, you've got apples and pears and apricots and peaches and all kinds of different fruits. And you can check each tree because they will vary in when they become ripe and ready to eat. Some earlier, some later. <coughs> you want to know how your spiritual fruit tree is doing? Come right back here to Galatians 5. Start reading off the fruits of his orchard. And... See how ripe each one of these is. Now, with each and every one of us, some of these things, by nature of our personality, we're going to be stronger in than others. But overall, through the fruit of God's Spirit dwelling in and flowing through us, it's all about relationships. Our feelings toward God and our feelings and our relationships toward men. And Christ boiled it down to that, didn't He? He said, how you treat... Other people, blind, naked, hungry, whatever, how you treat other people is exactly how I will treat you. Scary words, but that is his judgment. How we produce the fruit of the Spirit toward each other here is what he says reflects our true relationship with him. We can have this fantasy idea that our relationship with God is good. I had somebody tell me that not too long ago. Everything's right between me and God. It's just you and me that's the problem. That person was sinning pretty egregiously. But everything was okay between that person and God. No, it wasn't. Because God's law was being broken. 
And therefore, things were not right between that person and God. That had to change. And therefore, because God's law was being broken, the relationship between human beings was suffering. This is all about relationships. You might feel love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and faith inside yourself and figure everything's okay. But until you look around and start saying, how, how well am I getting along with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, you can't truly, uh, truthfully assess the situation. It's all about your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it's all about. hate to be the one to tell you that, but that's where it is. Our relationship with each other, right here on this property, reflects perfectly our relationship with God in heaven. Good place to stop.